G'day and welcome to Afterjet. I'm Aiden Law and I'm the host of this podcast that interviews people about the path that their lives and careers have taken since we've all surfed in the jet program, one of the largest and longest running exchange programs in the world. Many of us will continue on in careers in education, community building or public service, and for my guest, he has managed to combine all of these into an international career that has covered areas such as health, disaster relief and the empowerment of minorities in the community. From his time serving in the US Army, to JET, to teaching abroad and home, Mark Flanagan's career has been about working with young people through education in order to effect positive societal change. Enjoy! See you at the end. Sure. Yeah, thank you. So my name is Mark Flanagan. I was on the JET program in Nagasaki Prefecture in Japan from 2000 to 2004, currently working for the Imago Dei Middle School, which is interesting. It's kind of very Natsukashi to the uh, job that I did for the most part in Japan as a JET. Uh, So I'm here in Tucson, Arizona, working for a middle school that is uh, made up almost entirely of immigrants and refugees. So it's an interesting community to be serving in. Let's explore your your career background. You've done quite a lot of things and uh, started at the very beginning. You served in the army. People are sometimes surprised to find out, you know, I, I served in the military because I'm not particularly, you know, a loud or kind of like aggressive person uh, by nature. And well, mind I, you, Bob Ross is apparently a drill sergeant. So there you yeah. go. <laughs> I, just, I heard that recently. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to, to think about. He, yeah, drill sergeant too, no less. Um, yeah, no, the military, I mean, I kind of always imagined I would have some connection to the military just because of my family history, you know, on my father's side, most, almost all of the, you know, male relatives were serving in some capacity, a lot of them in World War One, World War Two, mm. you know, Korean War, Vietnam War, so, and even in peacetime, I mean, my dad served, but he wasn't, you know, didn't serve in war. So I always kind of just looked at it as sort of a family tradition, I guess you could say. Uh, I wasn't particularly drawn to it as, as a long-term career, but I did want to try it. So I did um, enlist in the reserves, you know, and then I went through uh, Army ROTC when I was in college and went on active duty for four years. So I did, yeah, I did uh, serve in the military for a time. And I actually, it's, people are, are sometimes laugh when I say I kind of enjoyed it because uh, they think, really? Like, that's an odd thing to enjoy, you know, uh, getting up early and having to do all this exercise and get yelled at and things. The camaraderie was really interesting. The aspect of kind of like we're all in this together mm-hmm. and you take people from all different backgrounds and places and, you know, histories and experiences and you basically forge them into a single functional unit, you know, that gets things done. I, all things being equal, I enjoyed it. I didn't stay in for my career because I realized that it wasn't ultimately what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. But I did and still do, you know, find the experience to, to have been uh, a, a good one for me in terms of just growing up and getting a certain measure of responsibility. How did you move from the army to teaching? Like, what was the emphasis behind that decision? I well, like I said, I knew I wouldn't stay in the military for my full career because I I could pretty much assess what it would take in terms of the long term commitment and just the you know real dedication to that lifestyle that has it's got to be all or nothing really 
to to sustain that kind of career choice. I did enjoy working with young people, though. One thing that moved me towards teaching was I, you know, when I was in the military, and especially my last couple of years when I was in kind of more like a command role, uh, I worked with a lot of people that were right out of high school and coming into the Army because they were looking for some direction in life. And I did really enjoy that, I think, especially, you know, serving in a unit with those kinds of young folks and trying to mentor them and sort of guide them along in their, their own uh, journeys. Uh, so I thought about teaching as a kind of extension of that, something where I could be serving in a role, similar kind of public service role, uh, but especially with young people. I didn't go to, to JET right away. That was a few years later, but I did get into teaching first actually in Mexico. Uh, I lived in Mexico for about a year, and that was where I got my real experience because that was the first time I, I spent any length of time outside the U.S. Well, I went to Egypt with the military, but that was like a three-month deployment. Um, and, you know, I'd been to Canada, but I'd never really been uh, long-term overseas. You know, I'd been to England, to Egypt, to Canada, but those were all relatively short trips. And uh, I really was interested in living and working outside the U.S. and seeing if I could do that, you know, as a kind of a full-time thing. So teaching in Mexico was a nice sort of segue because it let me experience that. It was still close enough to the U.S., you know, that if I bombed miserably at it, you know, I could just, I could sulk back home, you know, but but I really loved it. Yeah, living in Mexico and like experiencing life in a different culture and, you know, with like a different first language, you know, that everybody has and different traditions. And it just kind of opened my eyes to the possibility, you know, of living and, and teaching, particularly outside the U.S. So that's, ironically, I tell people that's, how I got the confidence to apply for JET because I wasn't a Japanese studies major or I wasn't, you know, I didn't know much about Japan in terms of language or culture. But I think having that experience teaching in Mexico was really what catalyzed my desire to go further abroad, like overseas and, and really try something completely different. I came back from Mexico and I was teaching in the U.S. at a school in uh, the D.C. area. And one of my co-teachers was married to a Japanese diplomat. So she's really the one that first told me about JET because she said, hey, if you want to teach overseas, Japan has this great program. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they take care of pretty much everything for you and it's competitive to get in. But, you know, if you can make it, then it's a great deal and can spend a year or more teaching in Japan. So that's really how I found out about uh, JET. And that was like completed my transition from my earlier military experience to more of like a full-time teaching type of role. What, what sort of teaching training did you do? Before I went to Mexico, I did like uh, an ESL, uh, immersive ESL uh, certification program. Yeah, I didn't have a teaching background, though. So that was kind of a, a bit of a jump to learn. I always say it's like an art and a science. You know, you mm. have the, the methodology and the pedagogy of it, but then also you're in many ways a performer. You know, you're up on, yes. that, on that stage. So it's not all technical skill. Uh, part of it is just your own personality and, and style. So I kind of, yeah, been in Mexico and the U.S., I sort of honed the rough edges and where my comfort zone was with teaching. So by the time I got to Japan, I'd been teaching like two and a half years or so, which was good. I think that was good training because a lot of people, as you know, go to JET with no teaching experience and they kind of get up there and they're <laughs> like me. <laughs> yep. What do I do now? Okay, like here I am, but like, gosh, what's what's my purpose? So uh, yeah. I had a more confident being a certified teacher. You know, I was a little bit older. 
to than the the average jet. So I, I had carried a bit more confidence, you know, into that jet classroom. So how was your experience teaching kids in Mexico and kids in Japan? How did they compare? Because I, in my opinion, I think kids are kids all over the world, regardless of language. No, you're right. Yeah, kids are kids. I find that even now, you know, here in, in Arizona, you know, these kids that are 20 years younger than the kids that I taught, you know, originally, but they're the exact same. They like to fuss and stall and, you know, ask you all kinds of other questions besides what's related to the lesson. But they're so funny at the same time and really do want to learn. I think all kids do have that desire, even though they don't seem like it, they want some structure and some guidance. I say maybe if there's one difference, probably the kids in Mexico were a lot louder with their you know, asking questions and Yes. Where I do remember the first, I think it was the very first, you know, Jiko Shokai or like self introduction lesson I gave. I thought I I went through the whole thing. I had, you know, pictures of my family and my hometown and maps and all this stuff and different props I'd brought. And like at the end, I I think the teacher was like, well, are there any questions? And like not a single kid had a question. And I was up there like, wow, I really, really stepped in it. Man, these guys must like not be interested at all in what I'm, you know, (laughs) what I'm doing. Uh, but then on the way back to the teacher's room, the teacher was like, oh, no, Mark Sensei, you know, they they respect you and they're, you know, that's why they're they're paying attention and they didn't want to be disruptive or anything. So it's not that they don't have questions, you know, it's like maybe they're a bit shy to raise their hand and, and ask in front of the class, you know, yeah. especially to use English like that in front of their peers. That was an interesting difference, but it was helpful because it, it helped me to realize that, well, okay, here in Japan, there are certain cultural traditions too you know where pressure maybe not to stand out too much or to mm. you know show off if you have better english than your your classmate and to keep that in mind you know when i was teaching and, and working with these kids unless of course you've got the class clown and thank god for the class clowns because yeah. <laughs> they're the only ones who would put their hands up they may not yeah. actually have done the work or even have the right answer but at least they keep the class going and they love yeah. the attention even if they're not necessarily like a great student per se, they're they're definitely invested in the class. Like you're you're saying, you know, they really are interested in what's going on and they want to be part of it one way or another. You said you've never been to Japan. Yeah, it how was, did you find it? It was interesting. Yeah, it was it was different. Like I said, I I had I kind of had to consciously sometimes unlearn some of the things I'd learned in Mexico. You know, because when I first got to Japan, I thought, oh, you know, I've lived outside the U.S. before. I you know I kind of have this thing down. And, and I quickly figured out Japan, like every country, has its own interesting quirks and written and unwritten rules, you know, that you sort of have to, to navigate. And uh, especially where I was, I was living in Hirado. It's an island, but it's technically now it's connected to the mainland via a long bridge. But it's an island in rural Nagasaki. So it was very much a traditional place. You know, most of the, the families that uh, the kids I taught, they were farmers or fishermen, still very blue collar and close to the earth in terms of their sustainability. Um, so I, yeah, I had to learn a lot about not just Japan itself, you know, the language and the culture and the kind of traditions, but even like rural Japan as opposed to urban Tokyo, kind of the vision that many, many of us have, where we think all oh, Japan is all bullet trains and high-tech billboards and things like that. Um, and, and they we, still use fax machines, though, in spite right? of that. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, black, yeah. and, and chalk and, and blackboards, Stop. regardless of, yeah. Right. Yeah, I know. That was a thing that, yeah, at least like, because, yeah, in Mexico, we have like, you know, the whiteboards and the markers and things. But I was like, yeah, chalk, really? Like, ooh, okay. <laughs> but yeah, no, it was great. I mean, it was it was a chance to really throw myself into something completely new. And I, I was in junior high school. So, of course, they have 
all these different events. And I mean, there's the sports day and culture day and all these different uh, things, seasonal festivals. Uh, so I, I tried to go to every single one. I was based at the local board of education. So I actually had, I mean, all over the island, maybe eight, I don't know, eight junior high schools I went to from top to bottom. Wow. And, uh, so it was like every day, pretty much. I was kind of in between a one shot and then a full time mm. school based ALT because I was based at City Hall, but I would literally every day I would wake up and look at my schedule like, wait, today is which? Okay, this school. And so I would rotate between, you know, these seven or eight junior high schools. And then I would go to two uh, elementary schools because they were just in the inception stage of trying to figure out English class and how that would look for Shogakuse. So there was kind of a pilot program for two of the elementary schools. So I would go to them like once or twice a month. So it was great because, you know, I got to work with a lot of different Japanese teachers of English and meet a ton of kids way more than I would have otherwise had I just been at one junior high. But I tried to be as open-minded as possible and, and realized that I was there not so much really as a teacher, although that's a certain part of it, but there's that second half of the JET mission, which is the international exchange role. And I really figured for me, you know, that was kind of like my main area of focus. I enjoyed the teaching, of course, and I liked working with a lot of different uh, JTEs. But uh, for me, you know, the opportunity to really get in there because you're like living and working right in the community. You know, everybody knows you, you know, whether you know them or not. <laughs> and they know where you, you know, where you went shopping and what you what you purchased and all this. But no, I, I really enjoyed the experience. And I stayed two years in, in Hirado. Mm. And then I was going to come home, actually. I didn't plan to stay that long in Japan. But once I was there, I just enjoyed it so much. And I couldn't really envision leaving after a year or two. Uh, although by the end of two years, I was kind of ready to move on. Uh, and I was thinking of coming back to the U.S. But then I got an offer to work at um, Prefectural Education Center, which was kind of a teacher training academy for Japanese teachers of English. Well, not just them, but like all the teachers and music teachers, science teachers would come through there. Uh, and they would have like workshops and different uh, basically events throughout their career. So like brand new teachers would come for their kind of orientation and then, you know, five-year teachers, 10-year teachers and on to the senior ranks. Uh, but I really loved that. I stayed there and did two more years of that. And that was really interesting for me because that was a much different role. Like I wasn't working so much with younger Japanese students, but it was teacher training workshops for adults you know, Japanese teachers of English, and they would come from all over the prefecture. So you would meet people from all different high schools, junior highs, even junior college. And that was great, because it was a whole different world doing teacher training for adults compared to lessons for like junior high and, and elementary yeah. school. How were you tapped for that? Was was it because you were you were JET? And that's how they approached you? Or? Yeah, they, it was interesting because I wasn't even aware, to be honest, of the... Mm. the I've never heard of it, to be honest. I've never heard of it at all. Uh, yeah. I don't know if, if it just depends on the prefecture, if they have one or not, but I, I knew that the ALT who worked there, but it was kind of vague and he was sort of cagey about what he actually did, so I never quite could figure it out. He probably was trying to, to hold it on to himself because it was such yeah, a fun deal. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, this is such a great gig, I don't want to give up the ghost on it. Yeah. Um, he was he was leaving because he was like getting married and, and going to grad school. So he was out of there. And they they did put I mean, it was a competitive application process. They put the word out. to right. It was like, you had to have been in jet more than one year. They wanted people with like a bit more experience. And you had to really, you know, we I remember we had to write this essay about why we wanted to have the job. And 
go for a formal interview, a sit down interview. Sounds like Jet all over again. Very, yeah, it really was. <laughs> and yeah, I went down to the prefectural, the uh, Kensho office, and I was like, wow, I feel like I'm going on trial for something, you know, because mm-hmm. you go into this room, there's this very serious table of like three or four like senior education people. And, you know, yeah, they're asking you all these questions like, well, why do you want this job? What do you think of Japanese children and school and kind of all these? I think they're delicious. Serve it a side of salad. Yeah. Yeah. They, I mean, they, yeah, all kinds of questions. And I don't know how many people applied for it, but eventually I did get the note that I was, had been selected. And so it was interesting because I moved, you know, within Nagasaki Prefecture to a more urban kind of city environment, which was a little Mm. bit different than what I had been doing. And I still, I mean, I actually lobbied to still go teach once a week because I thought I want to kind of keep myself honest, you know, and still be, have one foot in the classroom, literally and figuratively, to, you know, kind of inform what we were doing on the the teacher training side of things. But it was great because we actually went out, uh, you know, the teachers would come to our building, which was like a big, you know, training headquarters in the prefecture. But then a few times we actually went out to remote islands because Nagasaki has a lot of small islands uh, in the far reaches that it's not always easy for them to get to the mainland. So we actually went three different times to like very small and remote islands and did our teacher training there, which was which was interesting, too, because I was like, wow, I thought Hirata was a small island, you know, <laughs> with with hardly any people. But this place is, you know, it doesn't even have like a kombini or or any wow. kind of no pachinko, no karaoke or anything, you know, some of these, some of these small islands. I'm going to guess that you would be the first or one of the first and few foreigners they've ever seen in their lives. Yeah. Or am I wrong? Or Yeah, what um, was it like? Some of them, yes, and some no, because some of them did have ALTs, interestingly enough. I mean, I was like, wow, what do you guys do out here? You know, this is very, uh, it's like a survivor, you know, the, the TV show. <laughs> But yeah, no, you're right. One island I did go to, actually, yeah, they had never had, um, they weren't part of JET, you know, which is why they requested our, our workshop. But they, yeah, they didn't have an ALT. And you're right, yeah, actually, maybe I was the first, certainly with the young kids, I was the first non-Japanese person, you know, or at least person from the U.S., anyway, that they would have met. Um, yeah, it was funny. I do remember afterwards we were, we'd gone to an elementary school because we were team teaching, you know, I worked with my Japanese colleague mm. and we kind of modeled, you know, the team teaching approach. Um, so we went to a, uh, an elementary school and, you know, we were eating lunch with the kids after. And I remember I was getting up to leave, you know, and this one young student started just bawling, you know, just crying her eyes out. And I was like, what is going on? You know, why? And they're like, oh, Mark Sensei, like, she thought you were coming to the school, like, you were going to be a new teacher here. And like today was your first day. And at that point we were getting ready to leave. So we're kind of saying our goodbyes and it just kind of clicked with her that that was it. Like it was just that one day. And oh. no more yet. I felt oh. so bad. Yeah. Like, like I, you know, I, I had no idea she thought that, but it probably to her, she was like, Oh, it's, you know, Mark Sensei is our new teacher and here he is. And yeah. uh, I, I felt for her cause I thought, Oh yeah, this would be something interesting for them. You know, kids always like something new and different. So uh, hopefully they ended up, I don't know if they ever did get an ALT or not, but um, mm. I think that's the, the great thing about JET is it really does, like you say, you know, in a lot of these schools, they might, especially the ones outside the big urban areas, you know, they it's rare for them to encounter, you know, much less speak directly to someone from like a different country and different place. You ended up staying there for four years, two years longer than you thought you would. Uh, yes. yes. And yeah, what's uh, prompted the the move finally in the end 
I think I had gone to the point, you know, I'd been there four years, which at that time was a long time to be on jet because it had been a three-year limit traditionally. Um, I think four years was, was enough that I kind of felt like I'd done everything I wanted to do. And I thought about staying on longer, but I didn't really have the desire to continue. You know, like I said, I, I hadn't been like a Japan studies major. And, you know, I did study Japanese while I was there. I didn't see myself necessarily having like a long-term career in Japan or necessarily focused on Japan uh, itself. So I just, I, I figured it was the right time to kind of come back to the States and sort of get reacquainted with things, you know, like family and friends and sort of things I had left behind coming on jet. And uh, it was good. I think it was good because it kind of recharged my batteries. I ended up going to grad school in the uh, Washington, D.C. area. So I was there for a couple of years. And that, that led to my next step, which was working for the U.S. government for uh, a few years. So that was good because it was kind of what I needed at the time, just like shifting gears and doing like taking on a new challenge. But at the same time, it wasn't totally different because since JET, especially, my jobs have kind of always been focused on that nexus of, of public service and education and working, basically working with and for people. I worked, ironically enough, in public health emergencies with the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Mm -hmm. So I got hired and worked in their uh, an operations center that's like a 24-hour monitoring station that reports on any kind of like outbreaks of infectious diseases or earthquakes or natural disasters. So I'm sure now they're, they have their hands quite full with this uh, COVID-19 crisis. But that was interesting, yeah, because it was something different from JET, but at the same time, something along that kind of general progression of uh you know serving others and, and helping yeah i've uh, once again referring back to your linkedin you went you did things like program officer at the center for global education as you said you work for the u.s department of health and human services uh, and yeah. then looks like you headed back to japan again uh for two years with the with rotary international was a rotary peace fellow yeah, so, oh, that's, yeah, yeah, right. That's a whole different thing. And I would say to anybody who's a former Jet, that was an excellent way for me and for a few other people. I've known at least five other former Jets who have become Rotary Peace Fellows. That's an excellent program. The Rotary Peace Fellowship is a program that awards uh, a master's degree or there's a professional development certificate. But they partner with about five or maybe now six universities globally. And it's great because it's entirely, it's fully funded. So it's it's a master's degree that uh, you don't have to pay for or take out loans wow. to, to complete. And uh, it's really, it's not just a, a degree program, but it's also a very immersive experience because you are part of this cohort. Every year they, they interview and select, you know, just a certain number of people to join these Rotary Peace Fellowships. Uh, I mean, it's a wonderful network. It's a global network, you know, with Rotary International being a service organization that's headquartered in the U.S., but based around the world. Yeah, I went back to Japan. I studied for two years, and that was a completely different experience because it was about 10 years later than my jet, you know, the start of my jet experience, and it was in Tokyo, which is like the biggest, you know, metropolitan mm. area in, in all of Japan. So that was completely different. I, I, I mean, I kind of looked back. I remember when I first got there thinking, you know, in my cohort, at the, it was at International Christian University, which is a private school in, in the Tokyo area. It's one of the private schools in Japan that people uh, really look up to, like Sophia is another one. I was part of a cohort of new, you know, incoming grad students. 
And at first I thought, well, I've been in Japan before, you know, I kind of have it down. I, I know my way around, you know, I can adjust to things more than my classmates. So I was helping them kind of, you know, learn some of the ropes, but I, I just remember being kind of overwhelmed. Like the first time I tried to get on the subway system, you know, in Tokyo and <laughs> we were going somewhere to some lecture or some event. And I was just looking at that subway map. Like I have no idea. And everyone's like, Oh, Mark's been in Japan before. You can like figure this out. And I'm like, Nope. <laughs> wow, it's like a whole new world. But it was great, yeah. Being in Tokyo, I mean, it was it was interesting to go back to Japan because I know a lot of Jets do hope to get back there someday, but for whatever reason, it doesn't necessarily materialize. So I was incredibly lucky to have the chance not just to visit, but to live in Japan again. Uh, I always say it's like my twice-in-a-lifetime, you know, experience. <laughs> and uh, and doing it so in like in a, a vastly different environment, you know, being in an ur- the, the most urban part of Japan versus a rural kind of countryside environment and a different role to a grad student versus teacher in a local municipality. It was the same in a lot of ways, but it was also so much different, but I loved it. You know, I was there two years. I traveled quite a lot. I made a lot of great friends. I was able to do research, you know, at the graduate school level. And I, I really recommend anybody that's even remotely interested in this opportunity, if they look up the Rotary Peace Fellowship, you know, online. It's a, a wonderful resource. And it's it's an amazing way, not just Japan. I mean, they have partnerships with universities in uh, like Sweden, in the UK, in Thailand, the certificate program. Uh, the newest one is actually, I believe in Tanzania. I could be wrong, but it's a wonderful network. And I'm still in touch with their alumni system. I'm in touch with a lot, very similar to Jet AA. They have a very strong alumni network of fellows. Mm. So it's structured the same way in different geographic regions. And I do a lot of uh, speaking at Rotary Club events, even now, uh, just mm-hmm. to kind of say thank you, you know, for that opportunity. I'm sorry if you've actually covered this before, but I'm, I'm a little bit more interested in what you actually did as a Rotary Peace Fellow. Like, what was, what yeah. was, what, what do you actually do uh, on that, in that role? Uh, was there any particular thing? Because I noticed it says here, that you demonstrated a strong commitment to a career in peace and conflict resolution. So was yeah. that kind of a research thing or was it more of a working in a capacity in, in organizations with a certain aim in mind? Yes. No, that's a great question. It's, it's kind of a mix. It's, it is an academic program, first and foremost, because you're a, a full-time student. First and foremost, your job is to produce a thesis, you know, a master's level thesis. So you do take classes, you know, you do your research, but also they expect you to get out in the community and be doing different activities. You know, you do meet with the local Rotary Club, uh, which I've been fortunate wherever I've lived in the world, I've looked up, you know, Rotary Clubs and, and linked up with them. But you, yeah, you work with a local Rotary Club there on different projects at the community level. And you do, at least at, at ICU, it's a two-year program. So in between the first and second year, you do a, an internship, which is also paid, thankfully. Um, really wherever, you know, in the world. I mean, now it's a bit constrained with coronavirus, but uh, for example, like I did my, the summer between my first and second year, I was um, doing an internship in Geneva at the UN OCHA, like basically working on um, response to natural disasters and and things like that, because I, I had an interest in that from my earlier time with the U.S. government, but also because I was there during the time frame of the, uh, you know, the 311 tragedy. So up in Tohoku, what we did was actually through the, the ICU program for a while, it looked like the fellowship might be on hold and they weren't sure what was going on in Japan. And it was uncharted territory, but 
luckily, you know, thankfully they did give us the option to continue if we wanted and, and to go ahead with it. So those of us that stayed, two of our classmates did leave, but uh, the rest of us stayed and we said, okay, we're in this, you know, for the duration. Uh, but then, you know, we got back to Tokyo and we were like, well, what more can we do? Because Tokyo itself was basically fine. But we felt like a really strong desire to, to help out and kind of do more, especially in my case, you know, Japan had welcomed me so warmly twice, you know, not just once with JET, but again, with uh, the Rotary Peace Fellowship. So through the, the alumni network of Rotary, former Rotary Peace Fellows, there was a guy who was in Tokyo who was interesting. He was Japanese and Chilean background. And he was part of this network of like mixed roots. They were organizing a trip up to uh, Tohoku to do some volunteer work over Golden Week. So we were back at school and we had Golden Week off. They said, you know, look, we're going up to the area that's been affected by the disaster. So uh, we're organizing a trip and we're going to go and kind of dig out. There were still a lot of fishing villages that were under a lot of mud and sea debris and things like that. So we did go up to a village there. And uh, we stayed, yeah, about a week, not quite seven days, but about five days, you know, during Golden Week, and worked in this, you know, side by side with these villagers to help dig out just, I mean, all this stuff like houses and cars and fishing nets and, you know, things that had been uh, completely upended by the tsunami. And uh, it was really, yeah, it was probably the most challenging thing, I would say without a doubt, you know, the most not just physically, but emotionally challenging thing I think I've ever done, you know, seeing that firsthand. Because when I worked in Washington, D.C., you know, I was working on disaster relief. Like I worked on the Haiti earthquake response, oil spills and, and hurricanes and that kind of thing. But it was always like at a very, you know, high, you know, 10,000 foot level. Like, okay, let's send these supplies and let's coordinate this relief effort. But it's all very academic at that level. But to really get out there and see even months later, the, the devastation that disaster had wrought on those communities and, and just how it changed their uh, yeah. reality forever, you know, just through that one uh, terrible incident. I'm thinking back now, we were specifically in uh, Oshika. I think it's, I don't know if it's part of Ishinomaki, but if it's uh, incorporated or not, but it was a small fishing village, basically, where we were. And yeah, it was it was unbelievable because we're working side by side with mostly fishermen who had lost pretty much everything, like their homes were, you know, upside down, their boats were trashed. They they didn't talk about it, but a lot of them were missing family members who had been just swept away. And it was unbelievable because they were like out there working 10 times as hard as we were. Just they're like, hey, there's stuff to do. There are things that need to be fixed. And it was really, to me, that was like the strength of... Uh, you know, that kind of Japanese, like that gaman. Sometimes when things are hard, all you can do is dig in and just being so resilient and bouncing back or with people, you know, that have been widowed or, you know, orphaned or whatever the case is in a tragedy, whether it's wartime or a natural disaster, sometimes all you can do is just, just keep moving forward. To me, yeah, that was incredibly humbling to kind of just think about that. Like, wow, these, these folks have lost pretty much everything they have, their livelihood, their homes, their loved ones and you know here they are like just getting up and 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 getting at it it was a great influence on us because we were like wow this is really overwhelming and we don't quite know how to process it all but the the example that these townsfolk you know showed us was just really incredible because it just it forced us to kind of get up and be like okay well here we are yeah. you know, we have a job to do and let's let's get it done
and uh, yeah, it was interesting. They didn't like, like I said, they didn't talk to us so much because I think they were still going through a lot of their own shock yeah. and grief. But 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 they did appreciate, you know, the last day they did have, like, of course, being Japan, a ceremony, you know, like a closing <laughs> ceremony for our our service there. And uh, you know, they made food, and they had the local kind of mayor gave a speech, and it was it was very moving, you know, because I thought, wow, these people have like literally lost everything, but they're still making a big deal out of us coming up here and you know just spending a week or so it's not a huge amount of time but they were so thankful just to have us there kind of just really to to share that uh, time and space with them you've been around the world you've been to Chittagong, bangladesh you've been to bangkok thailand uh once again that one was as a rotary peace fellow uh, yeah. How did you go about looking for all of these positions? Like, for example, the World Teach Bangladesh Volunteer. Yeah, how did you actually find opportunities like that? Yeah, that was, that's another, it's it's kind of all been, you know, I don't know if it's just dumb luck, you could say, or, or something, you know, a kind of fortuitous just uh, sequencing of events. Uh, I mean, they don't just come at you, but I mean, I think if you position yourself, what I always try to tell people is if, if you position yourself in the best place you can and, and prepare, of course, realizing that things are always in flux, especially now with uh, the coronavirus. Uh, one thing I've always tried to do in my career is think like a few steps ahead and think, what do I want to be doing, uh, you know, in five years time? And, and But also I, I would like it to be consistent with what I have done. So I'm not just like hop skipping around for, for my own benefit, but like really building a solid, you know, um, mm. series of experiences that, that reinforce each other and, and that add value, not just to me, but to the people I'm working with, uh, most of all, hopefully. But the but yeah, the, the question you have about the, the Asian University for Women in, in Chittagong, that mm. was something that... You know, I'd, after the uh, Rotary Peace Fellowship in Tokyo, I was very fortunate to come across this job opportunity. This was purely was chance, but a job opened up with uh, the Japan ICU Foundation in New York City, which is another a great organization that does U.S.-Japan exchange programs and things. But they are basically the fundraising arm of ICU, you know, the university in Tokyo, uh, in the U.S., because if people want to donate to ICU uh, and they're like U.S. citizens, they can donate, and it's a tax-free donation because the Japan ICU Foundation is a 501c3 or a nonprofit that's incorporated here mm-hmm. in the state. So mainly the the idea of putting that foundation in New York, where it's based, is that you know you have access to alumni like North American alumni who have been at ICU, and then. You can do fundraising and student recruitment. So that's what I worked on for about four years after my time at ICU. So it was really nice because I actually would go back to Japan like twice a year on average for meetings at ICU about, you know, our partnership. And we, you know, basically worked in tandem with the president of the university. And uh, she has since retired, but she was a great resource Junko Hibia, she was the, as far as I know, the only, at that time, the only president of like a major, you know, mm-hmm. co-educational uh, university in Japan. So, uh, but it was great. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. You know, we did a lot of student recruitment, a lot of alumni activity. I worked with a lot of, you know, U.S. Japan 
organizations in these different cities where we have alumni chapters like D.C., New York, Seattle, uh, Los Angeles, Boston. And it was nice because there were a lot of uh, JDAA chapters there too. So when I would go to these cities to do recruitment events or alumni outreach for ICU, I would always invite, you know, JDAA mm. folks and then friends of Japan, you know, people from the embassy or the different consulates or the, uh, you know, U.S. Japan societies. And it was a great kind of fraternal organization of people, you know, even JETS especially. You know, I always enjoyed meeting JETS no matter when or where they served. But, uh, you know, just people that are connected to Japan that are here in the U.S., I always enjoyed meeting with them. But after, you know, four years of that, because I had done two years at ICU as a Rotary Peace Fellow and then four years with the foundation in New York, I was kind of ready, again, to do something a little bit different. You know, I enjoyed living in New York, but it was a bit tiring, to be honest. You know, the first two years were really amazing. And, uh, you know, I, I think I went out 24 hours a day and just kind of experienced <laughs> everything I could. But... Uh, but yeah, by the fourth year, I was kind of like, okay, I, I could use a change of scene. And I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but I was thinking of different job opportunities. And I just happened to get, I think someone sent me maybe a link to uh, World Teach, which at that time had a partnership with the Asian University for Women in Bangladesh. I don't think it's current now because of some political ties and you know, it's complicated. It was kind of like Jet in a way because they did recruitment here in the U.S., and then you would go overseas to do your service. So I, I had the interview. It was very similar to a gen interview here in the U.S. with World Teach, and and then was selected to go to Bangladesh. I could say of that experience, maybe more than anything uh, I've done was was really eye opening. You know, my experience in Asia up until that point had always been primarily East Asia. You know, particularly Japan, but then like China, South Korea, and then and then you know, Southeast Asia to a certain extent. I mean, I really only knew about like the Eastern, really half of the entire continent, which uh, I think a lot of people don't realize, myself included, before I ever traveled to South Asia or anywhere like that. I, I just could never really appreciate the vastness of the continent and really the diversity of all the, you know, languages and religions and cultures and traditions and everything. Um, so living in Bangladesh was quite an interesting challenge in some ways because it's still you know very much a developing country and a lot of the things we take for granted in places like the u.s or australia uh they don't necessarily have access to like dedicated power you know 24 mm -hmm. hours a day um you know clean water things like that really and it's you know it's not that they're not like incredibly hard-working people but it's just they're you know recovering from the uh old colonial system you know and kind of like trying to yeah. to develop on their own pathway. So anyway, I was teaching there for one academic year. Uh, and that was really a wonderful time. That was actually, I enjoyed it because it was a chance to get back in the classroom. Yeah. And I was teaching English as a second language to uh, basically students who were going to the Asian University for Women, but they weren't quite ready for the regular academic curriculum because they were, a lot of them were refugees themselves, like Rohingya refugees. Wow. Um, okay. were, a lot of them were garment workers who were uh, scholarship students studying there. So they were like a very special group. And they were really, they did a year of like intensive English learning before they would enter, you know, before they would matriculate formally to the university. And it's a very interesting school. It's designed to be a liberal arts institution and to prepare them for professional careers. 
yeah, the students I worked with in particular, they were very, very nice. I mean, very amazing because, I mean, when you have to learn, you really are motivated. You know, it's not like a luxury, but they were there for a year and it was like sink or swim. You know, if you mm. are in English, you can enter the university. And if not, you know, you're back to wherever, you know, whichever village you you came here from. So they were under a lot of pressure, but they were incredibly, I mean, talk about resiliency. They mm. really stepped up and and most of them not all of them made it but most of them did make it into the university and they're actually going to graduate this next may of 2021 so i'm really hoping to go back and yeah. surprise them if i mean <laughs> let's hope that things are at least somewhat semi-normal by then but my my hope is to go back and surprise them and just show up at their graduation reunion yeah or, and the idea is that you know these women and they're not just from bangladesh i should add most of them are but mm. a lot of them come from like Myanmar, you know, Bhutan, uh, oh, Vietnam, get... Sri Lanka. How do they get into the university from different countries? They do have to sit an exam, which, uh, which is tough. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not mm. easy. But they, what they do is they recruit, you know, they have uh, recruitment partners in each of these countries. Uh, and then, of course, within Bangladesh itself. Uh, in, the, in the case of my students, a lot of them, like I said, came from uh, garment factories, because the idea is that, you know, there, most of the workers are women, but very few of the managers are, which is, you know, it's a, it's a problem worldwide, but mm. uh, especially in Bangladesh, you know, the garment industry is a huge source of revenue for them, uh, and they export, you know, all over the world, but the, but the women who work for the companies are largely confined to the, you know, work floor, just mm. sewing basically all day. Uh, under conditions that are often dangerous and, and even deadly. But so the idea is to promote women to more of the managerial positions uh, with the idea being that they have the experience of being on the floor and kind of working the hours and they know the ins and outs of the business. But, you know, if they have that college degree, the university mm. training, they can ascend to a managerial level and really hopefully affect more change. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's really amazing. Did you ever step outside the classroom to get more involved in any kind of grassroots programs? You know, the university has all these like clubs, like a lot of, you know, schools do. So there was one club that was basically a social service, you know, volunteerism club. And we mm. would do things in the community. Like we went to, uh, I don't know, gosh, well, different orphanages, for example. And we would go and like read stories to the kids. Mm. And I, I sang a, uh, one time, this is, so it's kind of like reminded me of being back in Japan because we were at this, an orphanage, you know, we were getting ready to leave. One of the kids wanted me to sing, you know, like not that I build myself as a singer or anything, but... Oh, you know, Facebook might disagree. We saw your uh, <laughs> <laughs> karaoke yeah, post. Well, I, do, I do love karaoke, but they, but, you know, I, like I hadn't been singing there. Like I was just there like as a kind of a guest and, you know, we were, you know, we were like hanging out with the kids and playing games. And I was like, what do you mean, sing? And they were like, well, they just, you know, they think it'd be fun if you sang something. And I'm like, I don't know. And like the one, so one of the, the students who was with us, the university students, there were like maybe six of them from like Bangladesh and Pakistan and Bhutan. She had a, um, I don't know, she had downloaded like the Backstreet Boys anyway onto her. <laughs> you know, and they went through the whole trouble of like plugging it into these speakers and we were all singing that song, uh, what is it, like, I Want It That Way, you know, the old, like, yeah. <laughs> boy band stuff. And it was so funny because I was like, wow, this is something I had totally had never, I hadn't planned on doing anything like that. But it was funny because it actually, like, 
they did, of course didn't know any of the words, but they were all like, oh, like, oh, this is so amazing and so fun. And, and on my way back, you know, we were riding in the van back to school and I was like, well, yeah, I guess like if you're like in an orphanage, like you don't get the opportunity to do a lot of just purely mm. fun, like entertaining things. So I'm like, all right, it was, I think it was, uh, yeah, it was a nice experience. And we, we would go with, uh, we would do like uh, English classes for kids. There was like a, uh, center for like street kids in town right. you know, that were all like uh, orphans for whatever reason. I think really being in Bangladesh really opened my eyes because you know every country has poverty, of course, and I mean mm -hmm. every country has people that that are held back, you know, and and can't experience the full benefits of society for a lot of unjust reasons. But I mean, when you're living in a place like Bangladesh, it's where the the poverty is so abject and it's and it's system-wide you know and there are people that are born into you know certain castes that even though it's technically illegal they still exist in in yeah. practice where you know if you're born into this family or this part of town your destiny is to be a construction worker or some kind of mm -hmm. laborer and it's and of course that's changing i mean not that that's set in stone but it's it was interesting to me to realize i'm like wow okay like in the u.s you know in particular we have a lot of things that we still need to work on and that still need to be fixed and, you know, that are unjust uh, and need reform for sure. But, but it's just, it's, it's such a different experience, like living in a place like Bangladesh where people just struggle, like just to get up, you know, and just mm -hmm. to survive, like just to grind out that day-to-day -day existence. And that's what gave me hope because I, you know, encountering these, the women, you know, that I, that I taught, they were coming from very similar backgrounds where they were like, you know, in a traditional home, women were not, you know, the idea of a woman having an education was just, you know, mm. something that wasn't even entertained, you know, a lot of the time. So for them to have the courage to really not just take this opportunity to make, make the most of it and really try to defy the whole way to tradition and society. Yeah. Yeah. And just the odds. I mean, a lot of them didn't have any kind of academic background or training. And I mean, to go from that to like living in a dormitory on a campus yeah. and, and doing academic classes five days a week. I mean, they were like, oh my gosh, like what, <laughs> you know, how am I going to do this? And I mean, that to me, like inspired me. Like I thought, man, if these young women can take on these kind of challenges and just, mm -hmm. you know, roll with it, like I, I mean, I can't complain about anything. You know, it reminds me a lot of, you know, Malala uh, in mm -hmm. her situation, you know, defying the odds and, mm -hmm. and just, and saying, look, you know, I have a right to an education. I have a right to chart my own path in life. And, and I think, you know, we can do that in, in every country in the world, you know, expanding opportunity and, and correcting injustices and, and ensuring that people do have those paths forward. And we should never get so complacent that we just think, oh, everything's fine. And, you know, yeah. the world is like going to work itself out and it's all going to be good in the end. I mean, we have to like consciously be mindful of expanding opportunities to everybody and to, and to, to never just resting and saying, well, our work is done. I mean, it's always... Yeah something going on. I had done the yep. Rotary Peace Fellowship a, a second time, which was um, a bit unusual, but I was, I was very happy to get that opportunity. So I did the master's degree in Tokyo uh, about 10 years ago, and then I did the certificate program in Thailand, which is more for like kind of mid-career uh, professionals. So that was, that was great having that opportunity. Uh, but then I came back to the States, you know, to make a long story short, my mom uh, became very ill. And uh, I, I lived with her for a year, basically mm -hmm. to take care of her and help shepherd her along. 
through her treatment and, and thankfully now she's fine. But, you know, that sort of like took me out of things for about a year just because I was, you know, just uh, devoting basically all my, my time to, to living with her and <clears throat> making sure she was okay. Um, but, you know, I, that once that finished, my mom was like, okay, you have to get out of the house and like, you know, you, you have to get back <laughs> to your life and, and do something. I wasn't sure what to do because I was like, well, I'm back here in the States. You know, I've kind of, I had been, my career had been basically moving back into the overseas and especially Asia Pacific realm. And I felt kind of disconnected from that because I had been back in the States for about a year and I didn't really have any definite job prospects. I'd been applying for a lot of jobs, but nothing, you know, it's, it's, it's weird. It's like when you have a job, you know, you, I feel like you can apply for another job and get it with no problem. But when you're not working, it's this strange kind of irony where it's like harder to find a job because everyone's like, well, what are you doing now? Job hunting, you know, is what I'm doing, mm. uh, which is a job in itself. Finally, I, I was like, okay, things aren't working out. I was living in Baltimore and I was applying for a lot of jobs in the Washington DC area, but nothing was really coming to fruition. So one of my friends suggested this program called AmeriCorps, which is a national service program in the U.S., it actually was started about the same time as the Peace Corps. And the idea was, you know, the Peace Corps is sort of like going overseas and serving in a community there that needs assistance, where job, where the, uh, I'm sorry, the AmeriCorps is the same kind of blueprint, but it's based in the United States. So you go to, you know, an environment that's urban or maybe very rural, but in any case, they need some kind of assistance with something, like a program that needs to be managed for the benefit of the people you're working with. So I thought, hey, this is exciting to me because it's kind of like what I've been doing with JET and with mm. you know, the University for Women and it's you know related to national service, so kind of like my army time and US government time. And uh, I applied for it and I didn't realize at the time, you know, since it is a national program, you can really go anywhere in the United States. It's not limited to like your geographic area. So once I passed the initial interview, I started getting all these emails from nonprofits and organizations that are partnering with AmeriCorps, but like from Texas and California and North Dakota. And I was like, oh my gosh, like this is almost too much. You know, how am I going to sort out? <laughs> right. And they all sounded interesting. They're like, make a difference and, you know, serve and contribute and do this. And I was like, well, yeah, I want to do this, but where? And just by chance, I got an email from an organization called Arizona Serve, which is like the state chapter of AmeriCorps in the state of Arizona. And they sent me a bunch of emails. And one of them in particular, where I'm working now, Imago Day Middle School, was one of the partnering organizations. And they had two positions, uh, which I applied for, and luckily I did get one of them. The school is, it's, a, it's an Episcopal school. Yep. It's a small, it's a private school. I work in a middle school. And so it's very Natsukashi, you know, to my, my jet days. Like sometimes I look around and like, it almost feels like I'm back yeah. in Japan in a way. Cause it's a, it's a kind of an old school building that's been refurbished and, and the kids are, you know, the same age and they wear. They're using fax stuff. machines and they're using black, <laughs> yeah, chalk and yeah. backboard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah we, but it's, yeah, it's interesting. And like you say, kids are kids, no matter where mm. they're from or what time frame they grow up in. They're always, you know, like. 13 and 14 year old boys and girls are always going to be like that, you know, to a certain degree, mm. even beyond culture. Well, most of our population of the school, 90 something percent of it, either are immigrants from Mexico or refugees from different African countries. I mean, that's great too, because it's like I'm working 
here in the U.S., but it's it's in some ways it's like an international school, based on the the backgrounds of the families and the students, uh, and they're all they're all low income. They're all on a special tuition free program uh, that they qualify for. So we provide them with uniforms, with books, with everything they need. Basically, we have an in school uh, food pantry that's open a few days a week that we accept donations for. You know, that's it's, we just believe in providing as much as we can, not just in the classroom, but really even more importantly, like outside of the classroom mm-hmm. and then to give them just a stable and, uh, you know, as much sort of a feeling of, of stability and stability. Uh, yeah, that they don't have to worry about if nothing else. I mean, they have a lot of things to worry about, you know, when mm-hmm. you're on the property, but if nothing else, it's like, okay, they're going to have a box of food twice a week. We provide free English classes, for example, for the parents. Yeah. We have uh, you know, a variety of social service partnerships with organizations here in Tucson, uh, where I'm living, that, you know, that come and do workshops. Well, not now because of the COVID-19, COVID, but yeah. we would have people come to the school and give workshops on public health, yeah. on job hunting, on resume writing, you know, all kinds of things. And we have, you, you mentioned it, but we have a new program, which I'm really excited about because it's, it's the next step in our outreach in the community. We're actually partnering with refugees from Afghanistan. Mm. Uh, it's a totally new thing for this school. I didn't even realize there were refugees from Afghanistan in Tucson until I you know, became part of this program. But uh, we have this new organization called THREAD, which is part of the school, but it's a new project. And it's, THREAD stands for Together for Hope, resiliency, empowerment, and development. And that is a something that really came out of necessity because with the coronavirus here, of course, uh, a lot of people were put out of work. So a lot of these refugees from Afghanistan were working in the hotel industry, you know, service jobs, restaurant jobs, and they were all laid off. So what we do is we pay them, these refugee partners, to uh, sew, and we provide the sewing machine and the materials, but they sew cloth face masks. So, for example, right. masks that you would wear, you know, uh, to cover your, your nose and mouth. So these different designs, different, you know, po- different, uh, you know, types of masks. But the idea is that we pay them directly. So the money is mm. supporting the refugees. It's giving them some needed income. And it's promoting public health and keeping the economy here in Tucson. Uh, you know, the money is local. So it's staying in the community. Uh, and what we've done, it's it started in March, you know, with the pandemic, but now we've done over 11,000 masks. Wow. We, we pay them every week. Uh, you know, they come and they turn in the masks and we give them materials. So we are looking now, you know, the next phase is how do we build this into a program that's actually a sustainable, you know, uh, organization on its own, because it's now under the auspices of Imago Day Middle School. but ultimately. And we're actually looking into different options now to, to get these refugees, most of whom are women from Afghanistan, uh, training in business practices and, you know, right. how to run a small business, how to, to yeah. manage money and people. And my, my goal is like that we can actually make this sustainable enough that it becomes an organization that's run by the refugees themselves. And they are the ones you know, managing it and monitoring the progress and, and kind of building it. Because for me, that would be the ultimate goal is to not just be paying them, which is, you know, which is fine, but giving them the opportunity to advance and to self-sustaining. Yeah. 
become independent, exactly. financially independent. Yeah. But what's your role in these? Because uh, I, I, are you coordinating, but also planning the steps? Are you part of the strategy planning uh, committee, or are you more yeah. in just the administration and helping to implement the? Uh, the strategies and the plans that's come up by a committee, for example? Like, are you part of the decision-making process as well? Yeah, it's kind of, yeah, I joke that it's it's sort of a, at this point, it's it's something where everyone's like, you know, the jack of all trades and the master of right. none. We have about, we have about four staff people working on it. So my boss tapped me to be the kind of project manager. So I maintain all of the the records, for example, of who our refugee partners are, how much they're paid, you know, when they're paid. And we report, of course, all of it, you know, to the, uh, the IRS and everything. But we, um, yeah, right now I'm maintaining all the files and official records. But then also, you know, we're going around, we've donated probably 5,000 masks uh, to different community organizations. So different hospitals, shelters, um, Native American tribes, you know, here in uh, Arizona. So really, we want to get those masks out in the public. We're, we are selling them, of course, through the website, like imagodayschool.org, uh, you know, is our, is our website. And people can, if they want to order them there, they can. So it's, it's a two-part process. We're making these masks in order to pay the refugees and to get them out in public, because really, ultimately, we want to keep this coronavirus from spreading. So we've been donating these masks all over town. We're, we're looking in into different partnerships. I've been partnering actually with Rotary International. Uh, this is just a, a great tie-in, but you know, as a result of those Rotary Peace Fellowships, I've maintained really pretty close contact. Even in Bangladesh, you know, I met with Rotary clubs there. But here in Tucson, the Southern Arizona Rotarians, which uh, it's part of District 5500, which is the geographical district for this area, they've raised, I mean, thousands of dollars as well for our food pantry, and now for our thread project. So really it's great getting my role in some ways. It's, it's sort of to bounce around and do a bit of everything. But aside from the project management, my secondary role is to get out and promote the program um, here in Tucson, but even, you know, beyond that nationally and even internationally to help, you know, if there are people that are interested in this program and supporting it some way, um, you know, we're always open to that, but really it's, it's, Right now, it's just in startup mode, so it's kind of like a seven days a week um, yeah. cheerleader, you know, for the for the program. And and I no, I'm happy to see it. I mean, it's amazing to me the the just the women. You know, in some ways, they I've told them they remind me a lot of my students in uh, Bangladesh because a lot of these women, you know, again face similar challenges with poverty and with sexism and with you know all kinds mm -hmm. of and just being being a refugee in general is a really tough experience but then trying to start over in a different country and mm. you know different language and different traditions and a lot of them are single moms you know so they have that additional challenge so i just i'm i'm rewarded just by seeing them you know doing well and and yeah. being happy. it's kind of like yeah if i looked back from my time you know if i could trace a line from my military service through jet through the rotary peace fellowship to Bangladesh and then here to Arizona now, it would just be, you know, if nothing else, I hope that I've made some kind of positive impact and I've used, you know, maybe whatever privilege or advantages I had growing up, you know, here in the United States. Um, hopefully I've been able to kind of like apply that um, and, and, 
and utilize it, you know, to help others in need. And uh, wherever I can, you know, basically just keep helping, you know, and also keep learning. Because I realize, you know, now even 20 years after doing JET, you know, I, in, in a lot of ways, it's like you never stop learning and you never stop being a student. Even though we're, we were all teachers, you know, on JET, we are students of life, you know, and students of the process. And I think you never really get to the point where you can know everything or even know part of it, you know, it's always going to be a, a mystery ultimately. But, but I think, you know, the time we have on earth, I mean, whatever we can do to alleviate other people's suffering or pain or, or, you know, meet those needs um, in whatever way we can. I think it's sometimes it's easier just to do it on the local level. I found that mm. whenever I've been able to, to do anything in life, it's been change that's affected, you know, in Chittagong, say in Bangladesh or here in Tucson, Arizona, and um, to me, that's, yeah, it's frustrating because, of course, if you read the news, everything is, is bad news these days, it seems, and nothing works out. But, but I think we can take inspiration from, you know, working at the local level and just measuring whatever change we can, you know, incrementally and realizing that whatever we do today, hopefully mm. it's going to pay dividends, you know, years from now in the future, whether we're around to see it or not. The butterflies, wings creates a tsunami off the coast of Japan, sort of thing. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Although well, I probably shouldn't have used tsunami in this context, but anyway. <laughs> no, yeah. No, and I think we're all in that. We're still in the, you know, in a lot of ways in the larva stage or something. We're still, you know, yeah. our cocoons and trying to figure out, like, what are we going to do as butterflies? But, but whatever, yeah, I think whatever. And I, that's the inspiration I get really from, from, you know, I have to say learning from other jets and from, from hearing about examples of what people have done. I think that the really, the, the, for me, the best thing about the JET program, uh, you know, now that it's been around 30 something years, mm. is just seeing all those people that have come through it, you know, and all that they've been able to do and from so many different countries and so many different backgrounds, not necessarily all teaching, but a variety of career fields. But I think we've all been able to do some kind of impactful change, you know, wherever we are and wherever we're from. And I think the thing, the thing that unifies us is that we were all these, you know, clueless foreigners, you know, in a, in a classroom, <laughs> whether it was Hokkaido or Okinawa or, you know, anywhere in between, we were all in that position where we were like, what are we doing here? And how do we, you know, function? And it, it's kind of a humbling experience, but then it also energizes us to, mm. to do, you know, things that seem kind of impossible at first. And, and I think that with JetAA, you know, and with AJET and these different organizations, I mean, they really help galvanize people's spirits in that regard and really show you what you can do both in the classroom, but more importantly, outside the classroom and, and well beyond your mm. JET, your, whether it's one year ago or 20 years ago or more, you know, that's something we always have and it'll always stay with us and really be a part of who we are, I think, moving forward. Mm. You know, as long as there is a jet program, we're a testament to kind of like the long-term effects of, of the intentions of the, the founders of the program originally. Much big thanks to Mark for being on the podcast. You will find links to the programs and organizations in the footnotes. And if you haven't already gotten a mask and would like one, perhaps consider Imago Dei's Threads project. 
I hope you enjoyed this episode and perhaps be a little inspired by Mark's experience and words. And if you've started or become part of a community project, let me know, no matter the size. The sum of our efforts, after all, definitely outweighs the parts. And that's all we have for this episode. Thank you very much for listening and see you next time. Bye-bye. If you'd like to be a guest on a future episode, email me at webmaster at jetaainternational.org. This podcast is generously supported by Claire, the Council of Local Authorities for International Relations. However, it is otherwise an independent work by me, Eden Law. All opinions expressed in this podcast are solely the private opinions of individuals and do not represent any organizations that they work for. Music adapted for this episode is Life by Cambo and is licensed under an attribution non-commercial share-alike license available on freemusicarchive.org.